The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Two spheres that describe our relationship with the Lord. We use the word sphere because in the Greek it's in uh, plus the locative of sphere. That's the technical grammatical term, so it makes for a nice illustration. The top circle or top sphere represents our eternal relationship with God, and the bottom circle represents our relationship with God in time on a day-to-day basis. This is permanent. This is temporal and vacillates. When we trust Christ, We are immediately in Christ, the Scripture says. We are identified with Him and placed in Christ. At the same time, we have a temporal relationship based on our walking by means of the Holy Spirit. We can either walk by means of the Holy Spirit or walk by means of the flesh, which is the sin nature. When we sin, we are out of fellowship. When we use 1 John 1, 9 and admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, we are back in fellowship. Very simple procedure. While we are in fellowship, we study God's Word and whatever application we do, this uh, accrues to spiritual growth and spiritual production. In the top circle, this is a permanent relationship that can never be changed. So it's not dependent upon us. It's totally based on grace. And we've seen in our study of James that God's grace is defined as that which is generous and without reproach. He gives us more. He goes above and beyond what we need to provide for us. And Paul describes his trip to Jerusalem. And then we backed up a minute and we said, okay, what's the backdrop here? What's been going on in Jerusalem in terms of helping the the believers understand the gospel? And we have to understand that up until this point, in terms of human history, that God has been working through the Jews. And their fundamental... Uh, modus operandi has been the Mosaic Law. But then you have the cross and the clear statement in the Scriptures that Christ is the end of the law. He fulfills the law. So there's a change. Something dramatic is taking place in human history in the way in which God is relating to man. Now, under the Mosaic Law, there were a lot of different regulations. And one category that we talked about were food regulations. And to illustrate the point that there is a major change taking place, God revealed to Peter in a vision uh, by means of a a tablecloth that came down from heaven with all these animals on it, clean and unclean animals, animals that were forbidden to him as a Jew that he couldn't eat, couldn't couldn't even uh, associate with. In some cases, if he touched them, he would be ceremonially unclean. That means he could not go into the temple. He could not go into the tabernacle. It doesn't mean that this was sin. But all of these were like training aids, visual aids, in order to help people understand uh, some basic doctrinal positions about how sin affects our relationship with God. So most of these food items and animals were animals that were scavengers, uh, ate things that had already died. Death is a reminder of sin. And so if you touch it, it makes you ceremonially unclean or eat it because... You've been involved with sin. And it's all very visual illustration. Well, Peter says, no, Lord, I won't eat any of that because unclean food never touched my lips. The Lord says, look, Peter, 
What I've determined is clean is clean. Eat it. Three times this happened. It takes Peter a little while to catch on that, well, wait a minute, something's changing here. There's a dynamic that has shifted. When Peter finally gets the message and then he goes to Cornelius' household, Cornelius is a Gentile, and he doesn't demand that the Gentile Cornelius have anything to do with the law. He doesn't have to be circumcised. He doesn't have to follow any of the regulations in the law because Peter has gotten the point that the Mosaic law has, has ended. It's no longer valid for today. Something has changed. Then we come to a situation in Galatians 2.11 where Paul goes uh, and Peter comes up to Antioch. And while he is at Antioch, some legalists come up from Jerusalem. They haven't understood the point yet. And these are we call Judaizers because they're saying that if you want to be really saved, you have to come under the Mosaic Law. You have to still apply principles from the Mosaic Law to your life. And they're, 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 the peer pressure from these Judaizers is so great that Peter caves into the pressure and instead of going out to eat with the Gentiles and going down and having uh, seafood and eating shrimp and lobster and enjoying himself, he, um, he no longer associates with the Gentiles. And he becomes a hypocrite. And not only does he become a hypocrite, but his influence is such that others follow his leadership. And now you've got a situation that is threatening to divide the Christian community in Antioch between those who were Judaizers and those who were uh, grace-oriented. And the Apostle Paul steps into the breach and he, he really reams Peter out. He just braces him with the truth and he goes into a long discourse and that's what the context of what we're studying in Galatians. But what underlies this is this change that has taken place from the old dispensation, the old era, where God was working through the Jews to this new period in human history. And if you think about it from their perspective, they don't have access to all the revelation from the New Testament which we have. And they're asking the question, what is going on? And that's the question we have to to answer because one of the biggest problems facing Christianity throughout the era is that they do not understand the significance of the abrogation of the Mosaic Law. That Christ is the end of the law. For most denominations, they take the Mosaic Law and that becomes a standard of morality and a standard of spirituality. So that your your relationship with God is dependent upon your relationship with the Mosaic Law with the exception of maybe the animal sacrifices and a few things that were fulfilled by Christ. The issue is, and this is very clear, for the majority of people in Christianity, everything in the Mosaic Law is valid unless it was fulfilled at the cross. Okay, that's, that's their point. Everything's still valid unless it was fulfilled at the cross. What we would say is the Mosaic Law has become completely invalid. The only things that continue are the things that have been reiterated in the New Testament. Because there's a difference. And what we call this difference is a dispensational shift. And here's the word. Not a word that's real common today. A dispensation. In fact, sometimes we use it a little a little differently, we grant someone a dispensation, somebody might say, but a dispensational shift. So we want to look at the whole doctrine of dispensations because this is fundamental to understanding the Scriptures. 
the whole doctrine of dispensation. So where do we get this terminology? Well, for the most part, like a lot of terminology we pick up today, we get it out of the, the old King James translation. It was an, uh, a more common word during the Elizabethan era than it is today, so we're kind of stuck with it because it has found its way into, um, found its way into uh, our, our theological terminology. So let's begin with a definition of dispensations. We started this last week, and I want to go back and pick that up, and then we'll continue. In Acts 1-7, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and they ask Him, Lord, is it now that You're going to bring in Your kingdom? You died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. You've established all this now. When are you going to bring in your kingdom? Is it now? And he said to them, it is not for you. Now remember, he's talking to his 11 disciples who are going to be apostles in just a few days. It is not for you, you 11, to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Then we come to a passage in 1 Thessalonians 5.1. And the Apostle Paul writes the Thessalonian believers. And remember, he spent some time, maybe a year, in Thessalonica and taught them the whole realm of doctrine. And he says to them, Now as to the times and the epochs... Now that's the same phrase that, he, that, that the Lord used in Acts. And in Acts, the Lord said, It's not for you to know about the times and the epochs. And Paul tells the Thessalonican church, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Subtext. I taught you this in detail while I was with you. That's why I don't need to remind you about this because in 1 Thessalonians 5, he goes on to draw application from the whole doctrine related to dispensations and the last days and prophecies. So it's clear that the Thessalonians were clearly taught about the times and epochs, the times and the seasons, the King James said. And that has to do, times and seasons has to do with both the the chronological aspect of God's plan for human history and various prophetic events within God's plan for human history. So God has a definite plan for human history. Now, within this plan for human history, there are some things that always stay the same. And there are some things that change. Things that always stay the same, is number one, is God's grace policy. God determined in eternity past at the Council of Divine Decrees that He would always relate to man on the basis of grace. Man could never do anything to earn or deserve God's favor. Man can never do anything to merit the the approbation of God. God is absolutely perfect. He can have fellowship only with that which is absolute perfection. Man is not perfect, so man can do nothing that will ever get him even close to reaching the standard God requires for fellowship. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. So the righteousness of God rejects the inadequate righteousness of mankind. Therefore, His justice must condemn or judge mankind. One of the questions you usually run across when you're talking to unbelievers is the question, how in the world can a loving God send His creatures to hell? Have you ever run across that? Have that question occur to you? How can a loving God... So turn the tables on them. How can a God of absolute perfection let dirty, rotten sinners into heaven? Because that's the issue. 
It's not just love, but the righteousness of God and the love of, and the justice of God work in tandem with the love of God. God is made up of a, of a number of different attributes, and they all work together. So what the righteousness of God condemned or rejected, the justice of God judges, but the love of God, which is the motivation of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son, but the love of God found, provided a solution through the grace of God. That's how, it, that's how it works. So the grace policy endures consistently, and salvation has always been by faith alone in Christ alone. Now you say, well, the Old Testament, they didn't know the name Jesus Christ. No, they did not know the name Jesus Christ. Jesus has been known by a variety of different names in, in the Scripture. In the Old Testament, he was known as the angel of the, of the Lord, Malach Yahweh. And he was also known in many passages just as Yahweh. Remember, we studied in John in the second hour that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten, he has revealed him. So no human being has ever seen God the Father. The visual representation, the visible representation of God the Father has been the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So it was the pre-incarnate Christ who appeared to man throughout the Old Testament era. And they knew that God had made a promise that there eventually would be salvation, there eventually would be a Savior, and so their, their faith was directed to the promise that the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One, would come and solve the sin problem. They looked forward to that, so they believed God's promise that a solution would be provided. We look back. The solution's been provided. Jesus Christ, as uh, the second person of the Trinity, has been revealed as Jesus of Nazareth, and he went to the cross and died as a substitute for our sins, and our faith is based on him. Now, other things change. God establishes certain uh, policies, uh, certain requirements, certain different protocols uh, in relationship to uh, man and man's relationship to him, and these have changed from time to time. How is it we know that these things change? What's the vehicle that God has used for communicating the change in his plans and procedures within, within human history. That is called a covenant. It's from the Hebrew word berit, which me, it means a contract. That's the best way to put it into our everyday language. A covenant is like a contract. It is a legal document. Now, there are several different covenants and classifications of, of divine covenants in the Scriptures. We have on this overhead, I hope you can see that okay, it's a little shadowy along the edges. We have covenants that relate to the Gentiles. We have covenants that relate to the Jews, and these are classified in two categories, unconditional and permanent, and conditional or temporary covenants. A conditional or temporary covenant means it was just in effect for a certain amount of time. There were conditions attached to it. All of the other covenants, both the Gentile covenants and the Jewish covenants, are unconditional and are permanent. God, God in His grace, grants the contract to man, says, I will do this for you. There are certain stipulations for man within the context of that covenant, but God does not abrogate it. God's blessings are not made dependent upon human obedience. So let's just take a survey of these covenants. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to start with the first one and just work our way through the covenants because 
this is important in background. We're studying Galatians, and when we get into Galatians 3 and 4, Paul is going to build his entire case on the covenants of the Old Testament. So it's very important for us to understand these covenants. Galatians chapter, I mean Genesis chapter 1. Let's look at verse 28 and 29. God, start in verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Or male and female, he created them. Now, this is the discussion of what's taking place on the sixth day of creation. The creation of the human race uh, with Adam and Eve. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Notice what it's saying. Notice the command. Remember this command. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. He's giving man a mission. There's a lot behind this that I don't, just don't have time to go into related to the uh, vocabulary and its uh, way it's used throughout ancient Near Eastern contracts called the Suzerainty Vassal Treaty Form. Uh, it's very uh, fascinating how in archaeology we've discovered very ancient contracts were also called treaties. These very ancient treaties and just like a legal contract today has a certain format to it. You go buy a house, you're going to get a boilerplate contract, and the realtor is just going to fill in the blanks with your name and the seller's name and the price, and but all the other verbiage all stays the same. It follows a certain format. If you uh, buy a business, you have another type of contract form, and so you can identify certain things by that contract form. And I think that in God's dealings with man, from the Garden of Eden onward, God established a certain protocol for how these contracts were set up. And then man, when man started dealing with other men, he said, okay, wait a minute, what, what do we have as a frame of reference? The frame of reference was God's covenant. So they, man, man modeled his covenants after God's covenant. So we can trace certain, certain terminology and certain things there. And there are some, some of the terminology and verbiage used here in, in uh, Genesis 1 is uh, very reminiscent of the type of language that you find in um, suzerainty vassal treaty forms. Uh, suzerain is the Lord. He's the great king. In fact, Meredith Klein, who's a great scholar who developed this, called his book The Treaty of the Great King. You have the great king. He's the overlord. A fe- it's like a feudal concept, if you remember that from, from medieval studies. It's a feudal concept. You have the great king, and he has his vassal kingdoms. Think about the old Soviet Union under, under communism and their satellite nations. Those were like vassal nations to the great um, communist dictator in Moscow. And so the great king is, is pictured as having these vassal states who are subservient to him, and he gives them certain responsibilities, and in turn he's going to protect them and provide for them and do a number of different things for them. But he sets up this contract and he says, I will do this for you, you do this for me. And he gives them a responsibility and sets up a king, a vassal king, over a certain area. Well, this is the imagery underlying this. God is in heaven. He's created the earth and He sets man up to rule creation in God's place. As God's representative on earth, man is sort of a viceroy to rule the creation as God's representative. So He is to fill the earth, to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. He's to rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is man's mission. He is to rule and oversee the creation on the earth. Then, I want you to skip over to the second chapter. 
And we're going to look down to verse 15. Then the Lord, the chapter 2, comes chapter typical Hebrew style. You read liberal theologians and they'll say, well, you know, you've got a conflict here. You've got two different creation stories. Genesis 1 is one creation story where God does everything in six days. Genesis 2 reflects a different tradition. It takes all this time to create man. Well, what, typically the way the Hebrews write narrative is they give you a summation. They'll make, either make a sentence where they just summarize everything and then they come in behind it and give you all the details or they may give you a, a paragraph or two that's a summation and then they come back and they break it down point by point. So what we have in Genesis 1 is an overview of the entire creation week. And then in Genesis 2, Moses comes back and he goes into detail as to just what happened on day 6, all the mechanics of God's creation of the human race. And here we find that after he created them, in the process of giving them the creation mandate or establishing what I call the, or what we call the Edenic covenant, God says, then the, uh, the scripture says, then the Lord God took the man and placed him into the garden. Why? To cultivate it and keep it. Uh, what was the word used back in 128? Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky. And, and uh, here he's placed in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Hebrew word for keep is to guard it. So he's given a responsibility here. And this terminology is terminology often found in some of the treaty forms or contract forms of the ancient world. He's given a responsibility. So what's happened here under the contract of the Edenic Covenant, man is placed in the garden. He's given two responsibilities. One is to uh, multiply. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And two is he has responsibilities. So even in perfect environment, in a perfect situation where there's no sin, guess what? There's still responsibility. Okay? Human responsibility is established from the very beginning. Even in heaven in the future, we're going to have responsibilities. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to rule and reign with Him if we have pursued spiritual maturity in this life. What you are doing today prepares you for your future role to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. If you're a failure as a believer in this age and you fail to grow spiritually, see, the only thing that goes with you into heaven is what you can take with you in your soul. And the only thing that's going to be in your soul is doctrine. If there's no doctrine there and you haven't matured spiritually, if there's been no spiritual growth or edification, then you're going to come into heaven and there are going to be some loser believers, some failures who never learned anything, have no frame of reference, no concept of anything. They're going to get to heaven and go, where am I? But they're going to still be in heaven because they trusted Christ as their Savior. But that's all they did. They never learned anything else. They never applied any doctrine. They never grew. And they're going to, be, they're, they're going to lose everything at the judgment seat of Christ, but they'll still be in heaven. They won't have any responsibilities. They won't have any jobs, anything like that, because they never developed the capacity for it and that's what we're doing right now in spiritual life, spiritual growth. So they're given the respons- responsibilities to cultivate the garden, to guard it, or keep, keep it, to guard it. And three, uh, Adam was given responsibility for developing nomenclature for all of the animals on the earth. So this is their responsibility. And there is one prohibition. And that is that they can eat from the fruit of the tree, any tree in the garden except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And <coughs> we know that what happened was that Eve saw the fruit. She was tempted by Satan in the form of a serpent. She um, ate the fruit and enticed her husband. He had a choice between this uh, good-looking companion who was his helpmate and, uh, and the fruit, and he decided to go with her. And so we have the fall. Now, that's the end of the Edenic covenant, and it's going to be modified in the Adamic covenant. And that is basically what happens in Genesis 3:14 and following in relationship to God's curse on, man, on the human race and on creation. Remember, <clears throat> I want to drill this into your thoughts. We're going to need it over and over again. Righteousness, justice, love. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. But what the righteousness of God condemns or rejects, the justice of God condemns. But, the love of God provides the solution through the grace of God. So when Adam sins and goes from a status of moral perfection because he was originally created in the image of God and so he was morally perfect, he had no sin nature, there was only really one sin they could commit in the garden and that was to disobey God and eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When he sinned, he lost his perfect righteousness. He went from plus R to minus R. And minus R can have no relationship whatsoever with plus R because what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God must condemn. And that's what we find here. It's the condemnation. Verse 14, And the Lord God is going to lay this out, to lay out a curse to each of the characters involved in the drama. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's going to be hostility, a state of warfare between you and the woman, and between your seed and her, your seed and her seed. Now he's not specifically talking to, to the, in terms of a snake here. He's talking to Satan. There will be this uh, status of warfare between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And her seed here is referring to who? This is your first allusion to the gospel. Seed, and we're going to see this in Galatians, seed refers to Jesus Christ. Paul's going to go back to Genesis, both here and in uh, the Abrahamic uh, narrative, in order to demonstrate that the seed refers to the person of Jesus Christ. And between your seed, Satan, your seed, and your following, and her seed, i.e. Jesus Christ, he shall bruise you on the head. A head bruise is a fatal wound. So Jesus Christ will have a victorious fatal wound and this occurs at the cross where Satan was defeated. Satan's plan was completely defeated by Christ on the cross. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That would just be a temporary or small wound which is what the cross was because Christ rose victorious from the grave in resurrection. So that sets up our foreshadowing of the gospel. This is God's grace provision right here. What the righteousness of God rejects the justice of God condemns. And we see the condemnation in these verses. But the grace of God provides, the love of God provides the solution through the grace of God. 
to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Now, what are we talking about here? Why does he come in here and start talking to the woman about childbirth? Let's go back to the Edenic covenant. What was the requirement? The first thing, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, now because of sin, it's going to be more difficult for you to fulfill the requirements of the covenant. We're modifying the covenant. It's no longer a status of perfect environment anymore. You have sinned and there are consequences to sin. Being fruitful and multiply is now going to be difficult specifically for the woman. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband. Now this is a very interesting word, ladies. And since I'm here and I don't know when I'm going to get to a marriage class, we'll stop a minute and just have a little application in relationship to marriage. And why is there a war of the sexes? And it goes back to, the, to this very passage. And it has to do with the very nature of man and woman. That when God created man and God created woman, God, they were different. They were not only different physically, which is obvious to anybody, but they were also different in terms of their souls. The, the male soul was made to be the initiator, the leader. The woman's soul was made to be the responder. She's created to do what? She's created to be the helper. To the man. He's the one given the responsibility to be the leader over creation. In fact, if Eve had sinned alone and Adam had not sinned, the human race would not have fallen. Because it wasn't, her decision wasn't the one at issue. It was his, because he's the designated leader of the race. It's not in Eve all die, it's in Adam all die. The issue is what does the man do because he's the leader. Now, that doesn't mean that her sin, her sin would not have had consequences but it would not have had consequences for the entire race. So Adam was created with a soul to be an initiator and the woman is a responder. Now some people say, well, you know, that's not always true. Some women are good leaders and some men are bad. I know, but we're living in a fallen world now. We're not living as God originally designed things. And we always have to start with how things are intended to be, not how things are, because we're not living in the world as they were intended to be. As it was intended to be, we have to go back to the divine design. So... The man was designed to be the initiator and the woman was designed to be the the responder. Now what happens here is that she's given a curse and the word here in the Greek is teshuka. T-E-S-H-U-K-A-S Fascinating words, only used three times in the Hebrew. Now, what in the world does this mean? Now, you've probably heard this before, because a lot of people have. And it's amazing how many people make this mistake because they don't know Hebrew very well. And it says, yet your desire will be for your husband. What, What they'll teach is that this is your love desire, your sexual desire for your husband. That women, that if you're really following the Lord, then what this is saying is that you're going to have a desire for your husband. Your desire to love him, a sexual desire for your husband. And most women kind of chuckle under their breath a little bit when they hear that, but you know that's a common teaching here. That's not what this is saying. It has nothing at all to do with this. If you want to understand what this word says, look across the page in most of your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. This is a situation where Cain and Abel are in conflict. And Cain is very jealous 
of Abel because of God's blessing on him because Cain was trying to gain God's approval through his works. He brought the wrong kind of sacrifice. He brought the fruit of his own work instead of bringing a, a lamb without spot or blemish. And so he becomes very, very angry and the Lord personally comes down and confronts Cain with this. He says, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? I mean, he's just angry. It's, why is your face like that? You could just see it in his face. He's mad. He's depressed. God says, if you do well, i.e., if you're obedient and follow the instructions I gave you to bring this kind of a sacrifice, will not your countenance be lifted up? Will not you be lifted up? You'll do right. If you do right, you're going to not be angry and you'll feel well and you'll be approved. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Point. Sin is always when you're at a point of temptation here and you've got a choice how you're going to respond. And sin, the sin nature is just waiting to gain control of your life. It's like a ravenous wolf and it's just seeking to control and dominate you. That's the thrust of the sin nature. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Look at that image. It's like a lion just getting ready to charge and pounce. And its desire is for you. Now, what kind of desire is that? That's a desire to dominate, to control, to overpower. It's teshuka. That's what the word means in Genesis 3.16. Is that the woman is part of the curse, is part of sin. She now wants to wear the pants in the family and rule the husband. And that's the broad sexual trait of women is to be in control. Now, men, don't think you get off very easy at this point either. Because God is, it says here, your desire will be for your husband, he shall rule over you. And that word for rule has a sense of dominate. So what we see here is in a fallen world, apart from regeneration and apart from the scriptures, you're going to have a warfare between the sexes as women want to dominate and want to rule and men want to dominate. And they just nobody wants to have authority orientation and and they just go at it head to head. Then in verse seventeen, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, in other words, Adam, instead of being the leader you were designed to be, you have uh, weakened yourself and you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now why does he curse the ground? Well, let's go right back here to understand the function within the guard, the Edenic covenant. Multiply, multi, being fruitful and multiply, that's dealt with. Now the woman's got to have pain in childbirth. It's going to be more difficult to fulfill that. Now he's got a job here. He was to cultivate and keep the garden. What happens here? Cursed is the ground because of you. You had responsibility before, but now it's going to be very, very difficult to fulfill that responsibility. In other words, responsibility now becomes toil. It becomes labor. It becomes something you really don't want to do. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. In other words, it's going to be very difficult. The tasks that I have given you respectively as man and woman are now going to be burdensome to you. In other words, you're not going to want to fulfill that and that's going to be the trend of the sin nature. It, thorns and thistles that shall grow for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Before it was easy. They had responsibility, but it was easy. It was not difficult. It was enjoyable. 
It was fulfilling. There was no difficulty. There was no adversity to it whatsoever. Now it's cloaked in adversity. It's difficult. It's toil. And so what man wants to do is, I got this job, but it's so rough, I just don't want to do it. So the wife may want to may want to rule the husband, and the husband wants to let her. Man, I don't want the responsibility of being the leader in the home. I don't want to be the responsibility of being the spiritual leader in the home. I don't really want the You know, I'd just be happy to sit at home and be couch potato and sit here with the remote control and click through the channels and just, just veg out. And I don't want to get engaged with my wife in conversation. I don't want to be the leader in the home. I don't want to make the tough decisions. I don't want to be the spiritual leader who's responsible for the teaching and spiritual nurture of my children. Because, man, that's toil now. I've got to work at that. I, 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 work, I get up in the morning. I leave the house at 6.30 to go to the office. I get home 6.37 at night. Then I've got this other stuff. I just don't want to do it. So I'm just going to find my little office or, or television or whatever it is, and I'm just going to abdicate these responsibilities and let her do it. Because after all, she wants to do it. So I'm going to let her do it. And therein lies the formula for marital and family collapse. And that's where we find ourselves as a culture. What changes this? What changes this is the grace of God and the redemption solution. Because in Jesus Christ, we are new creatures. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And when you come to the New Testament and you look at the commands that God places upon the man and the woman in terms of their relationships, in relationship to the... Remember, that's in Ephesians 5, following the command to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. The woman is to obey her husband. And that means that her love for the husband is respect. It's the highest form of love. She respects her husband and his role as the leader in the home. Now, that doesn't mean he's always right. Remember, one of the fundamental principles of authority orientation is that you respect the office even when the person in the office is not worthy of respect. And we have to do that with a president. We have to do that with an employer. We have to do that with a military commander. We have to do that in many different realms in life. The individual who may be placed over us in a position of authority may know less than us, may not be as competent as we are, and may not even be worth it morally. Yet they are in that office. And because they hold that position of authority and responsibility over us. We are to be submissive to them, whatever realm that is. You know, when you teach these women, say, well, this is so hard. Well, you know, everybody's under authority. Everybody's in some kind of position where you have to obey an authority over you. The husband's not off scot-free. He's under the, uh, under the authority of Jesus Christ. So the woman is to love her, is, is to respect her husband, to obey him as unto the Lord. It's related specifically to her relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the husband is to love his wife. Now, that's not a passive term. Love is a very active concept. He is to love his wife. How? As Christ loved the church. That involves sacrifice. That involves making her a priority in your life. That involves doing everything necessary to accomplish the task, and the task is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And these are spiritual issues so important that Peter comes along and says if there's marital breakdown, 
your prayers won't get heard. If there's marital breakdown, your prayers won't get heard. So that relationship between the husband and the wife has a major flaw in it because of the curse of sin. But that flaw can be wiped out by the grace of God and the application of doctrine and spiritual growth within that relationship. Now, back to our subject. We've had a little sidelight on a little marriage special there. Now we'll get back to covenants and dispensations. Covenants. We've seen the covenant, the Edenic covenant in Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15, the fall and the curse, the modification of the Edenic covenant, uh, Genesis 3.14 through 19. And the human race operates under the Adamic covenant for a number of years, about 16 or 1700 years until the flood. And during that time, the fallen angel, Satan, instigates a little plan and procedure in order to destroy the purity of the human race to prevent God from fulfilling His promise. The seed of the woman is the promise. So that means that the Savior of the world has to be true humanity. Only a Savior who was true and pure humanity could die as a substitute for the human race. So Satan is going to try to block this by destroying the purity of the human race. And in Genesis chapter 6, we hear of his nefarious scheme where it says that in Genesis 6-2 that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, the term sons of God is the Hebrew word, and this is very important, one of the reasons why you have to know the original languages or you're going to make cause problems. B'nai Ha-Elohim. B-E-N-E-H-A, that's your definite article, Elohim for God. Now, this is a technical term in the Old Testament for angels, both fallen and unfallen. And you see this in several passages in Job 1 and Job 2, where it's talking about the angels together, both the demons and the holy angels, as the sons of God. So, you have two categories of angels, fallen angels, are then divided into two categories. The categories of those who lost their first estate here in, um, uh, are, are those, those who were uh, involved with the human race here and are, are now imprisoned in Tartarus and those that are still free today known as demons. So there's imprisoned demons or fallen angels and those that are still loose. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. So there's procreation going on between uh, angels or demons and, uh, and the human race. And you see remnants of this in the old mythology where you see the, the Greek gods coming down from Mount Olympus and taking, seeing a beautiful uh, woman and taking her as his wife and having an offspring like Hercules who was half man and half god. Well, where does this come from? This comes from the, the Nephilim here in, um, in this passage. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in these days. This is this hybrid race, half demon, half man. Were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, who were of old, men of renown. And God then looked at man in verse 5 and saw that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And in order to preserve the human race, he sent this huge flood as judgment on human sin. So here we come back to this principle that 
always goes along with God's grace is judgment. There must be judgment of sin. God's grace is always based on the fact that His righteousness and justice is satisfied and there is judge, judgment of sin. We'll come back to emphasizing that in our passage with, with, uh, in John and with John the Baptist later on. So after the flood and Noah and his children come off, there were eight people on the flood, on, on the ark. There was Noah and his wife, three sons and their wives. Now I imagine Noah had a lot more sons than that because uh, up till he was, five, he was 500 years old when the Lord came to him and told him that he was going to uh, judge the earth. And by, if you live 500 years, you usually have more than two or three kids. Uh, but it was, a, um, it was quite a world at that time. And most people rejected grace and rejected his message. Noah preached for 120 years and nobody responded. Now, was Noah successful? You bet he was. Because he did what God wanted him to do. You see, God's criteria for success is different from our criteria of success. Our criteria of success is you're successful if you, if you do great things and have a large number of people coming to church and if you uh, build a big organization or make a lot of money. God says you can be a failure in the eyes of the world and not attract anybody, not have anybody respond to your message and uh, never have a successful company at all. Well, because you as a believer are operating in the cosmic system, you're in the middle of spiritual warfare. And all your failures may be related to spiritual warfare, but the issue is, are you walking consistently with me? And if you're walking consistently with me, learning doctrine, applying doctrine, growing spiritually, and doing everything the way God says to do it, then in God's book, you are a success. That's what matters. It's what God says, not what anybody else says. So we come to uh, uh, the, uh, the debarkation from the ark, and God establishes a new covenant with the human race and its sign is the rainbow anybody seen a rainbow yet lately okay that covenant's still in effect then God blessed Noah chapter 9 verse 1 and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth have we heard that before yes we have that goes right back to the uh, command in Genesis 1 uh, 28 in the Edenic covenant so we're getting a what a further modification some things have changed right Sin, suffering, toil, pain in childbirth. Some things stay the same. Some things have stayed the same. See, there's, there, some things never change. Some things do change. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here's where the, and now we're going to see some changes. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand that are given. Okay, now... There's fear and terror for the human race placed into the animal kingdom. You didn't have that before. Now you have that. Or it's intensified, perhaps. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. Man before this was gramnivorous, vegetarian, not, a car- not carnivorous. Now he's omnivorous. He eats vegetables. He eats meat. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Don't eat raw flesh. And surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man. Wait a minute. Something's changing here. God is now delegating to the human race judicial authority. If a human being is killed by an animal, then that animal should have its life taken. Capital punishment for animals who are man-eaters, man-killers. Number two, from every man, 
from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Let's make this clear so God makes it clear in verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For punishment? Yes. Because it's going to reduce the murder rate? That's not what this says. It says, for in the image of God he made man. This is serious. You do not take someone's life. Only God has the, has the prerogative of doing that. When someone takes someone else's life, they're acting like God. They deserve to be removed from the face of the earth as quickly as possibly under all fairness of jurisprudence. Is the Anybody seen a rainbow lately? In the last year or so? Okay, you've seen rainbows? It's still in effect. Hadn't changed. This covenant's still operational. That means... Capital punishment is delegated by God. It's still operational. It hasn't changed. All of these stipulations are still on the earth. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply. And I think we've done that. In 1974, the world's population was 3 billion. Now it's 5 billion. In another 12 years, it's supposed to be 6 billion. I think we're doing that. Incidentally, that's about the population of the earth at the time of Noah's flood. If you take the very conservative figures of three or four children per family, and remember these folks lived to be 900 years of age, so they were uh, their childbearing years probably lasted five or six hundred years. <laughs> A lot of women groaned when I said that. <laughs> it was universal. Uh, childbearing years lasted for four or five hundred years, so they probably had many more children than just two or three. But if you take a conservative guess, estimate of three children per household, and now, remember, you've got overlapping generations, 10, 11, 12, 13 generations living on the earth at the same time because they lived 900 years. Today you only have three, maybe four in some odd circumstances living at the same time. Then you have 11 or 12. That means that everybody, it's 1998, everybody who was born from approximately the year 1000 to now would still be alive. Okay? Think about that. So you have an enormous population on the earth because people just aren't dying. Everybody's living these incredible number of years. So you have a, a population probably conservatively, if they only had three or four children, conservatively the population at the time of the flood was between three and five billion. Now, if, they, if you double the number of children, then you're talking about 10 or 12 billion people on the earth at that time. So, there were only eight believers on the earth. Think about that. You feel sometimes that you have a struggle because there aren't too many believers around. You don't know what a struggle is, that there aren't too many believers around. Noah preached for 120 years. Nobody believed him. didn't have a single convert. It would have been a failure in anybody's book, but he's a success in God's book. God says that they are now to be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth. So that goes on. The Noahic covenant is established with all Gentiles and it goes on to eternity. That's the point of that. You can't see it real well. There's a long pink line that goes out there. It doesn't stop. Nothing has abrogated the Noahic covenant. It's still in effect. Now, the implication of this, if God's going to say, now I'm delegating the authority to you that if... A, somebody takes the life of another human being that you have to take their life, that becomes the, the basis for establishing human government. 
You didn't have human government like this before. You didn't have a judicial system and this delegation of judicial responsibility until now. So this comes along, it's established, and this becomes the basis for human government. Now, what we see here is, and I'm going to pull up this chart, that in terms of dispensations, there, have, there is one age. Up to this point, there are only Gentiles on the earth. I always have to look at these and find out my colors just don't work. Okay, over here you have eternity. You have the, down here in this bottom line, you have the Edenic Covenant. That's what starts it off. On the earth there's just Gentiles. No Jews yet. That doesn't come to Genesis 12. You have one covenant, basic commands. The Edenic Covenant covers man in, under the first era of human perfection. But then they, they sin. There's the fall. There is a dynamic change in the human race. That what goes along with that is the terms of, of how man is going to relate to that covenant are changed. And you come into an age we call the age of conscience. There's no human government. Each man is his own authority, in a sense, between him and God. That's under the Adamic covenant. That falls apart. There's human failure and responsibility there. And you have the flood. That's the second line, the flood and God modifies the covenant once again to the Noahic covenant. And this establishes civil government and that goes on and there's going to be failure. They're not going to scatter and multiply. What happens is they congregate. They build cities. They're going to build cities to build up their own reputation instead of glorifying God. And they erect these ziggurat towers like the tower, specifically the Tower of Babel. And they're going to, the text says, make a name for themselves so God then scatters them. He comes down. Up to this time, you only have one race on the earth. Who knows what color they were, but there's only one race. They're all Gentiles. But at the Tower of Babel, God splits up their languages. And God, being omniscient, knows what the genetic traits of everybody are. And up to this point, you have one common genetic pool that just mixes everything up because there are, there are no natural barriers within that genetic pool. But now everybody's divided up into linguistic groups. And so you have uh, genetic isolation. So you have this group over here that has these genetic traits. You have this group over here that has these genetic traits. This group tends to brown skin. This one tends to black skin. This one tends to yellow skin. This one tends to red skin. This one to white skin. This one has one eye shape. This one has one nose shape. This one has one head shape. And as this group is isolated linguistically, certain genetic traits began to dominate within that group and so that's where you have the origination of races. And then God comes along and He says, the whole human race has been a failure. I can't work with them. I'm going to call out one individual and I'm going to work through him and his descendants. And this is Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, we have the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant. And it is reiterated several times, but we'll just look at its summation here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. There are three parts to it. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So what have we seen so far? Number one, He calls out Abraham and He promises him a land. There is a specific land that I'm going to give you. The land which I will show you. And he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your na name great and so you shall be a blessing. 
And I will bless those who bless you. So he's going to have a seed. He's going to have a nation, a following, a people. I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is what the Abrahamic covenant looks like. There's three categories that God talks about here. Land, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people, what we call the seed, and blessing. Now, this covenant is expanded upon by three more covenants in the New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament. The land covenant in Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. These three covenants just expand the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, says, I'm going to give you a land. In the land covenant, he describes what the boundaries of that land are going to be. From the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. And from the Mediterranean Sea over to Arabia. All that land was up, into, up to Damascus today, Syria, parts of Syria, Lebanon, uh, the Transjordan, uh, Israel, all the way down into Egypt, parts of Arabia. All that is part of what God promised Israel. And they've never, ever occupied all of it. The furthest they got, the furthest expansion was under Solomon, but he never controlled all of the land God promised them. So that means, is God true to His Word? Yes, He is. If God promised them that land, are they going to get it? Yes, they are. When are they going to get it? Well, if they haven't received it in the past, then it must be future. So that means that God at some future time is going to come back and give the Jews what He promised them. The Davidic covenant. He promised David that he would have a son, a descendant, who would sit on His throne forever and ever and ever. Is that going to be fulfilled? Yes, it is. In the person of Jesus Christ, who is called the Son of David, He's a descendant through both Joseph and Mary. Joseph, an adopted father. Mary, His true mother. He's genetically a descendant all the way back to David. And He will sit on His throne. Has He done it yet? No, He hasn't. There's no throne of David in heaven. The throne of David will be in Jerusalem. He'll do that when He comes back in His kingdom. Then there is a new covenant that is established. The new covenant relates to the blessing. See, the land covenant is the first one. Then the seed relates to his seed, which in Galatians chapter 3, Paul will tell us relates to the person of Jesus Christ. Blessing has to do with blessing through you, Abraham. All the nations will be blessed. That comes about in the person and work of Jesus Christ because of his death, substitutionary death on the cross. All nations are blessed and can come to salvation in Christ. And we live in the church age where there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or slave. In other words, racial distinctions don't apply in the church. Sexual distinctions aren't an issue. That doesn't have anything to do with role distinctions. It has to do with the fact that under the Mosaic Law, men could go into the temple, women couldn't. There were differences in terms of their relationship with God under the Mosaic Law. Under the New Covenant, under the church age, they, there aren't any distinctions. Men and women have all the same spiritual assets and privileges in terms of their relationship with God. They're both royal priests and royal ambassadors, and there's no distinction. Bond or slave, it doesn't matter what your economic status is, whether you're a, a slave or a bond or free, whether you're free or a slave. The new covenant was established by Christ on the cross, and then the, the Jewish covenant is the Mosaic law, which is temporary. So let's put this up. Here's looking at the Old Testament. You have a big shift that takes place with the call of Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish race. All Jews go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What sets each of them apart, there were other children, but they were all regenerate. Ishmael was the son of the bondwoman. 
Now we're going to Hagar, the Egyptian woman who was a slave, and she, he was not the seed. He was not a believer, and we're going to see that. That all, that's a big part in, in Galatians chapter four, and that's the age of the patriarchs: Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then the enslavement in Egypt, and then the coming of the law and the establishment of the Jewish nation. And Moses is the father of the Jewish nation, and that comes to an end with the establishment of the new covenant at the cross. So now we come to an overall view with of dispensations as such. In the top row are your major ages. The age of the Gentile, the age of the Jews, the age of the church. The bottom row are your dispensations. Last time I said dispensation translates the Greek word oikonomos. It comes from two Greek words. Oikos meaning house and namos meaning law. House law. Your house law changes at times. The person who rules the house says, okay, now we're going to change the rules and regulations and we're going to do it this way. You knew that when you were a kid. When you were uh, a preteen, you had certain rules and regulations. You had to be in bed by 8 or 9 o'clock. You had to eat your vegetables, do different things, whatever. When you became a teenager, you got to stay up till 10, 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night and do other things. When you became an adult at college age, uh, 1920, you may have still lived with your parents, but the rules changed again. They're still your parents? Yes, they are. You're still their child? Yes, you are. Some things stay the same, but the house law, the rule, some of the rules change, and that's what happens here. These are your dispensations. What in, in, initiates the change is the covenant. From per, human perfection, you go to the Adamic covenant for the age of conscience, you go to the Noahic covenant for civil government, you go to the Abrahamic covenant for the patriarchs, and then you go to the Mosaic covenant for the law, which is temporary. Christ fulfills the law, establishes a new covenant, comes in the church age, which is mystery doctrine that hasn't been revealed in the Old Testament. The Jewish age was cut short by seven years, according to Daniel chapter 9, and it's finished out in the tribulation. The seven-year tribulation fulfills all the judgments related to Jewish disobedience, ties everything up with a nice ribbon and bow, and the Lord Jesus Christ descends to the earth at that point. Right here, you have the second coming of Christ. Here is the rapture of the church. Jesus takes all believers living and dead to meet him when he comes in the air. He doesn't come to the earth. He just comes uh, to the air and all believers are raptured at that point. That means they're taken up into heaven immediately. Jesus Christ returns to the earth at the end of the tribulation, uh, saves the human race from self-destruction at the battle of Armageddon and establishes his 1,000-year rule and reign on the earth. Now that gives you, in a nutshell, a dispensational framework for understanding human history, God's plan for the ages, and the background for what's happening in Galatians is the shift from the Mosaic Law to the church age because Christ has come and fulfilled the law with the incarnation of Christ and with His death, burial, and resurrection. With that, we'll close. And next week, we'll come back and we will look at the whole doctrine of imputations and how that relates to justification. Very critical doctrine, imputation. Not a word we use a lot today, but a very critical concept. If you ever wonder about eternal security, if you ever wonder about how God can save you irrespective of whatever you do afterwards, then you need to understand the doctrine of imputation. It's foundational to understanding your salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Lord, we thank You that You have revealed Your plan for human history, that we can look at it, that we can evaluate it, we can see from this that the center point of history is that You sent Your Son in the fullness of time 
to the earth that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that we have salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not, is not confident of their salvation, does not know where they would spend eternity, that they would take this opportunity right now to tell you in the privacy of their own soul that they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. They trust in Him alone. That's all that's required. Doesn't need works, doesn't need any emotion, doesn't need any feeling sorry for sin or any false promises. It just needs trust in Christ. That's it. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember these things, that they would help us to understand your word and make it more clear to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.